Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. Welcome to Frontline Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and I'm super excited for today's episode. Today's guest is the director of C-Train Digital Industries Learning at Siemens. Please welcome to Frontline Innovators, Gail Norris. Hello, Gail. Hello, Justin. Happy to be here tonight. Thank you so much for having, uh, for participating in the show today. Uh, you and I have been working to uh, plan this session for uh, mm -hmm. quite some time, so I'm glad we were able to finally pull it together with everybody's busy schedules. Oh, as we often do on the show, we always do on the show, we start off with the same question. What do you see as the biggest challenge facing the deskless frontline workforce today? For those of us who are kind of distributed now around the, the four corners of the country and the world, it's very difficult to connect, especially for new employees, finding how to make those connections and make those networks and find ways to work through the organizations um, with everything we've got on our plates. Uh, with the unemployment going up a little bit with some of the things and concerns around um, inflation with the economy, with everything else that's going on, there's a lot of uncertainty, which is driving folks to uh, need more of that support network. So I think the better we can make that employee experience and the more connected we can make our people, the more likely we are to retain our people and motivate them accordingly. You just brought something up that is kind of interesting too, in that with the unemployment going up, um, with also at the same time, interestingly, many of the organizations that we talk with on the podcast and in my day job are struggling to fill roles at the same time. And it puts a burden back on the people that are there. So you've already talked about just the the need for more of a support network. Let's spend a minute on that. What, what do you mean? What what does it mean to you to have a, a broader support network? And, and what are some best practices that we can learn from, from your experience there? It's a great question. I think um, there are a lot of things all of us can do individually as well as organizationally. I think focusing on the employees and making sure that we understand where they are in their life cycle, if you will. Um, what do they need at various points, touch points? I think as we look at Gen Z a little bit to Gen Y, they're at a different point in their life than some of the Gen X and even the boomers. So as that interaction occurs, there has to be an appreciation and a respect for where each one is and recognize that one generation may need something different than another generation. So I, as a boomer, would not necessarily need the same consideration and reinforcement as somebody who's just entering the workforce does. So I think if managers understand those generational differences, as well as organizationally, if we organize around how do we create events so that people who are distributed in an area can come together, 
can play a little bit, can talk a lot of it, um, and interact just on a regular basis. So you build those networks, you build those connections, and connections are what keep our people here. You and I, in our when we were preparing for today, we talked a lot about the the global nature of your current role and that that you've had in the past and the the challenge of trying to create systems and processes that were universal globally and and how difficult or maybe just flat out impossible that really is and you reminded me of that conversation when you were talking about thinking of the the differences in the generation of participants but also then going back to what we talked about before the geography and just the different customs and practices that that people have. And I'm curious if you can expand on that a little bit, because obviously our audience didn't get a chance to hear our prep call. I mean, I obviously work for a German company. Um, there are differences in the way we work versus our European counterparts. Um, and there's just basic cultural approaches that we do differently. And so understanding those, having an appreciation that somebody in Asia is going to come to a meeting differently than somebody in the US. Um, when we're doing training, even we do it in breakout groups within teams, but having that open dialogue, why do you see this different when you approach your employees versus the way we approach our employees? And how would you handle it? And doing that kind of dialogue in a open and I don't want to say accepting, but at least curious fashion builds better relationships globally. And it also leads to potentially some new ideas that we can incorporate here in the US or in Germany or in Asia. Elsewhere. Yeah, that's a really good point. Okay. Um, I'm already getting down into some of the things that I really wanted to talk with you about, but we haven't given our audience a chance to hear uh, who they're hearing from. Why don't you give us a little bit about your background? It's clear that you have a, a strong bias toward communication and thinking about how humans interact with one another. What has led you to uh, to dealing with that as a profession? I think um, I started life as an accountant. That's a very introverted position. Yeah, that doesn't make sense at all based <laughs> on what we just talked about. <laughs> and I, I think what I gained as I went through that and started to manage people was especially as you build one-on-one -on -one relationships with them, um, they open up and it's, it's kind of like the flower opening and you gain all sorts of insights into what their drivers are and how you can help them to learn and grow. And so as I went through all the various um, transformations in my career, I've been through, I think four different functional areas over the course of my career. Um, that was the one thing that was constant, was how do you develop and talk to your people and make them feel a part of the team? I think helping them to buy into the vision, whatever you have for whatever function you're doing, making them a part of building that vision and the solutions to create that vision um, really builds a cohesiveness and allows you to incorporate diverse ideas into the outcomes. Yeah. So... If you, how did you get from accounting then into, you mentioned that you worked in four different functional areas. How did you get from accounting into doing what you do today? So we started out with audit and consulting, and then we went into internal audit, and then we went into um, supply chain. 
And um, for me, that transition was kind of easy because it was numbers. When you're negotiating something at the end of the day, it all boils down to the numbers. Um, but the supply chain aspects gave me a huge appreciation for operations and managing large groups of people. Um, so moving from that into then managing programs, strategic programs for a business, and then from there into this position, which is focused more on the whole skills development aspect and helping our customers to optimize their workforce. Yeah. Okay. That makes, uh, it, it, it's interesting as, as I just think about how many times you've talked about humans connecting with other humans just in our previous conversations. And then, uh, today I'm, I want to go back to some of the things that we had talked about previously. And, and that was around how to get that buy-in. So, you know, you talked about having the vision and making the teams a part of that vision, but let's, let's talk a little bit more about that because that, that strikes me as something that's easy to say, but not necessarily easy to do. And especially in a complex organization, like the one that you work at today and, and the customers that you serve who are also, you know, large multinational companies as well. I think there's, um, I didn't know how to do it until I did it. And it was kind of a feeling through of how to create a strategy and a vision. Um, I'm a big fan of Kaplan and Norton out of HBR. And so I read all of their books and then I conducted my first strategy and visioning exercise. Um, and we built upon that. So for me, it became a process of how to create the vision. So going through, okay, what are our competitors doing? What are our customers saying? Where's our portfolio today? And what are the new things that are coming out that we may want to incorporate into our portfolio? And so you engage everybody in those conversations around each of those areas. And as you build out those areas, the vision starts to become fairly clear. And then you come back around and you say, okay, and now what is our vision statement in regards to what we're going to offer our customers through this new portfolio? So how do you deal with some of the issues when some of the folks may not come on board on the vision or the vision that the contributions that they're making may not really align with some of the bigger picture. I mean, I see there being a lot of room for, um, you know, conflict and, and friction in that process. There can be, I think, um, releasing some of the control to the team so that they can come up with, okay, you want this thing in our portfolio. Um, we can do this parallel thing that's kind of the same, but it's, I like it better. Okay, it'll achieve the same end result. Why not? So I think doing a little bit of trade-off for control versus engagement um, works well. You mentioned if if you don't give them some ownership. This is in our previous conversation. You said um, you talked about allowing those folks to to take some ownership of the change and participate in that process. And if they don't, they'll go back to what they used to do. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I think um, I didn't realize this until way later in my career, but I've I've always somehow been tasked with the um, charge of transforming and doing more with less in every organization I've been in. So recognizing the pain that can come with redistributing people and re-educating people and 
letting some people go, um, making everybody as much a part of that as they can um, throughout that, that kind of conversation. Number one, people can sometimes see what's coming and say, okay, this isn't something I want to be a part of, so they're going to leave anyway. Um, or they can buy into it and you can find new ways of doing things that you hadn't even thought of as part of the original transformation. But that transformation process, you've got to iterate it. You've got to come back to it and reinforce it constantly um, because to exactly what you said, if you don't, if you just lay it out there and say, okay, do it, they'll do it one time and then they're back to what they're comfortable with. So you've got to make it comfortable for them, give them some rewards around it, um, make it a game, um, make it engaging, have them design their own future. Any success stories that you can draw from of trying to get some of that engagement in the way that you just described? I think the biggest one was when I was responsible for operations accounting and we were tasked with developing a comprehensive system that um, took everything out of our WIP system and transformed it based on customer contracts into a customer invoice. And previously we had a crew of about 50 people who did that manually. Um, so they pulled out all the data and analyzed it and put it into these spreadsheets and then generated a word. I don't even think it was word at the time, but basically a word invoice. Um, and so help, having them as part of the design of the system that we were going to do, and it took us three years to design it, and then having them test it and parallel it, um, and then having them write the manual that we use to train everybody with. It was kind of like it built so that they saw it in its first infancy, they saw it in its completed phase, and then they saw the benefits that they could get out of using it ongoing. So we could do a lot more with a lot less and it took them less time to generate the invoices. Customers were happier, the accuracy was up. And for the most part, we didn't lose anybody that we didn't want to lose. That's amazing. Are there any stories, and you don't have to share any proper names here, obviously, but are there any stories when that didn't go quite according to plan? I don't remember any of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you just repress those memories. No, it's like, yeah, that never happened. Um, yeah. No, I, th I think there were some where we were trying to enforce on other groups. Like they weren't um, folks who had ownership in the process. And it was more like, we want you to do it this way because it'll be easier for us. And I think those you learn from it and you learn the fact that you, you got to show them what's in it for them. Yeah, Got to have a benefit for all parties. You can't just do it for one party. Well, that's probably a good segue into some of the things that you and I have talked about with the most projects that you've been involved with have been large multinational complex projects that involved people from you know various parts of the world. And many of the guests that we've had on the show and, and many of the people that I deal with in uh, my day job at Skillful also are are working and trying to solve these challenges for global companies. So I'm curious to get your take on, you know, first I'd like to hear about what are some of the observations that you've had about the complexities of dealing with digital transformation initiatives across a global workforce. You know, what are some of the the myths 
that when a project is originally stood up that don't seem to to materialize and that add to the complexity of that when you're actually getting into the implementation? I think there's so many examples of what doesn't work um, that it, you kind of get lost in them. But I, I think if you focus on what does work, the biggest one to your point is communication, making sure you've got that dialogue, making sure you've got the stakeholders engaged and having an understanding of what the end goal is um, so that everybody can kind of revolve to the same thing. And it doesn't always come out that what we have here in the US is the same thing as what they're gonna have in the UK or Germany or every place else, but they may take it and tweak it a little bit so that it works better in their systems and processes, but the base idea can be the same. And that that's where I think it's, you know, run global, but act local kind of deal. That's an interesting thought. Um, you know, let me be devil's advocate for a minute though. It, it comes up a lot on this podcast about helping to position what's in it for them when we're talking about the end users, particularly the men and women on the front lines. But I think if we're being honest with ourselves, a lot of times the improvements that we're looking for are not necessarily for them. They may not be against them, but as an oversimplified example, we may be trying to improve the inventory accuracy of a warehouse or of a shipping operation or something like that. And we're asking the men and women on the front lines to gather more data and it may actually be taking more time and it may involve a little bit more effort on their part, but there's a downstream effort to the, to the business, to our customers, to others. And there may actually be a small price to pay, not monetarily, but a price to pay in terms of time and efficiency and things like that. But the net net at a big vision standpoint is, you know, it's still better for the business. And so I, I'm just kind of, very politely, but challenging the idea that every time the people that we're asking to change receive a, a direct benefit themselves. How do you think about that? And is that just a matter of us helping to explain? I mean, I don't want to give you the answer here because I really want to hear your answer, but I guess I'm just thinking about, you know, is it about spinning this to, to find some benefit for them? Or is it about helping to tie it to the bigger vision for the company? Like, help me process that a little bit. I don't think all of us all of the time see the benefit in the current minute. I think there's often a longer term benefit for each of us that if we if we help our folks to stretch a little bit and get into that discomfort zone, um, they'll get to it. They'll realize it. And I mean, even to your point on inventory accuracy, okay, if our inventory is more accurate, you're not gonna to have to search and hunt and peck and you're not gonna be promising the customer something that we don't have. So mm -hmm. trying to explain that to a customer that your inventory count was inaccurate is not a pleasant experience. So how do we make it seamless and really effortless for you by improving inventory accuracy so that you can have a happier customer? Because if you've got a happier customer, you're gonna be a happier employee. Yeah. Do you see when I know you deal with external folks outside your organization. So again, I'm not asking necessarily for any uh, proper names here, but I'm I'm curious about some of the pushback that you may get from your customers about how to implement change. Do you find yourself having to persuade them 
to focus more on change management and to be more deliberate in this? Or are you seeing that customers are already aware of the uphill battle it's going to be to support this transformation initiative and are are looking to you for that perspective? I think that um, it's probably a joint effort. We help them to identify the benefits, but there's there's that piece that they have to understand at their own employee base and their own stakeholders within the organization and how that needs to be managed through the organization. Um, it's, I think we worked with one customer to um, change the way they were educating and validating the education of uh, some of their employees. And I think the first year was painful because they made it such that if the employees couldn't pass the assessment, they were kindly disinvited to continue participation in the employment. Huh. Um, and that that's hard. I mean, that's hard on the employees when they've always been kind of just a part of it and they're going to keep on getting the training until they get it. Um, and so I think that kind of cohesive change um, takes a lot of grit and persistence and somebody who's willing to push sometimes a little harder to get it through because the end result is a better educated workforce who can do the tasks necessary and keep the lines going consistently. That's a really interesting story that I don't think I've ever heard anybody tell before on the show about the potential penalty to lack of adoption is being out of a job. I mean, even if that is, uh, you know, it's it's probably always a possibility to some extent, but it sounds like in your case, that was communicated explicitly. How, how do you think that it, it, you know, affected the adoption do you think it had a favorable impact or do you think it just created more stress and frustration? I think it created an environment whereby people knew that the employer was serious and okay. that they needed to upskill and they needed to take the coursework serious because they were given the course three times before they were told that. So they were they given plenty of chances. chances. Oh, yeah. 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 So it's, it's a matter of, okay, we're not going to, you're not once and done. And I think with any change, it's not once and done. You keep on trying with those holdouts. You keep on trying to find a way to pull them in and make them a part of it. And that's that's just any change management. You're going to have one or two that are just going to say, this is not for me and I'm done. Um, and they'll leave either voluntarily or not voluntarily, but they'll disassociate with it and they become less engaged. And you try as a leader to pull them back in, but sometimes you can't. Yeah. Yeah, actually, as I heard you say that back to me, it on one hand, I I could argue that it probably created some stress for for some people in the organization, but I also can appreciate the plain speaking of saying, "Hey, this is a part of the job. This is what has to be done. It's unambiguous. This needs to happen." And it it, it is a fact that we're going to see the continued use of more and more technology in all of the roles, whether they're frontline employees or knowledge workers or whatever, we're going to continue to see more, not less technology being used. 
And to come into an organization or to be in an organization and just say, hey, I'm just, I'm not going to play along. It's just not going to work. More engaged you are, the more opportunities you get. Yeah. So I'm curious to, you've mentioned the customers a couple of times and I'm, I'm curious what your take is on how customers feel the impact of, and not necessarily your customers, but the customers on the receiving end, how they feel the impact of digital transformation and, and perhaps more importantly, when things aren't going as well and, and the transformation isn't happening smoothly, how you see customers feeling the impact of that? I think number one, COVID made trans digital transformation a trajectory that has increased phenomenally. Um, everybody recognizes, to your point, we're having a harder time finding qualified skills. So if we can't find the people, we have to find a way to still do the work. Automating is the easiest way to do it. Digitalizing is the next step. So even automating within your financial realm, there is so much that can be automated and digitalized within your financial exercises. And yet oftentimes you'll go into companies and that's their biggest workforce is on the financial side. So if you can streamline all of that and reduce a lot of those heads, that then gives you the ability to focus more on customer value and how you can drive more cohesive service delivery and product innovation to please your customers. Somebody said something to me recently that kind of resonated. I'm curious to get your take on it. And it was that as we automate more and more of the things in our businesses that can be automated, they tend to be the things that are more predictable, repeatable. That's kind of what lends itself well to automation. The byproduct of that is that the things that are remaining for the humans to do that scripts can't done, you know, be used or AI can't be used or whatever the case may be, uh, are those things are more challenging because they couldn't be automated because they do require critical thinking and things like that. So how do you think that plays out? Do you, do you see those humans then being more burdened? I mean, as you just talked about the example of automating more and more of those things, there's an impact then to the humans that instead of having some portion of their day, perhaps that they were able to do the easy tasks combined with the complex tasks, what's left for them to do now is nothing but the complex stuff. What are your thoughts on that? It depends to a certain extent on the organization and the people, but there's, there's a, a certain joy in being able to address stuff that really challenges you and makes you think deeper. Um, so if you can come to conclusions or to solutions for those types of problems, it's a much more fulfilling role than what you have when you're just keying stuff in um, to the system. Yeah, I, I know that's true for me. Once things become predictable for me, my attention span wanes for sure. You know, I- the ADHD I, I, thing. Yeah, for sure. I need to be sinking my teeth into things that are not predictable that do allow me to kind of kick into problem solving mode. I, I do know we, we've had people in our business and I've come across a lot of people I think that appreciate things being a little bit more predictable. They don't necessarily feel as comfortable with um, 
you know, an ambiguous role where things aren't, you know, quite as, as just that, you know, predictable and repeatable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think most of us want to be able to to sink our teeth into something that, uh, as you said, is, is a little bit more interesting and thought provoking. And I think there'll always be roles for people who don't want those types of thought provoking, entertaining jobs. But I think there's still stuff out there. I mean, you look at the exoskeletons and the the cobots and how all of that is going to interplay together. We don't know all we we need to know yet. You look at ChatGPT and what can it do for us? Generative AI. Um, we haven't figured out how to apply all of that yet in a comprehensive, cohesive manner. But there's a whole bunch of very smart people working on it, and I there think are. what they're going to come up with is going to amaze us. Yeah. That's a good segue into kind of my my last area that I wanted to to dig into with you a little bit is you've had such exposure to big projects throughout your career. And I'm curious about your take on not just the digital transformation themselves, but the tools that are being used to manage those projects and the communication. I mean, I'm a little bit biased because I run a tech company that helps with this kind of change management. So I admit that I have a little bit of bias here and I I want to continue to learn about that. But also in the spirit of innovating on the front lines, this is really what the, the show is about. And I'm, I'm curious to, to hear what tools you're using, what your customers are using to help with all the things you've talked about today, the collaboration, the communication, the training, the documentation, what are you seeing that that's being used and and perhaps where there's still some gaps? I think just classic project management is still out there for any of these projects. Um, and it's it's being refined kind of as we go. Um, the beauty of Teams and Zoom and all of those collaborative tools has been realized as a result of COVID. And the things we can now do virtually that we wouldn't have thought of five years ago is just amazing. So the ability to collaborate globally in regards to product innovation, the ability to collaborate globally in regards to digital transformation, the whole concept of digital twins and how those allow you to really test out what you're thinking of doing on your product line, it it moves it in such a leapfrog fashion to a whole new set of problems that we don't even have a good comprehensive comprehension yet of what those problems are i definitely think it closes the gap you know especially just geographically being able to kind of place shift you know the fact that you and i right now are in two different cities and able to have a conversation as if we were sitting in the same room i i do think there may be some downsides to that and i'm curious to get your take on this too because it it feels to me what's happened with our schedules of being back-to-back Zoom and Teams calls versus some of the in-person meetings that we used to have. I'm a sucker for socialization, so I may be biased on this, but some of that small chit-chat that happened out in the hallway um, that maybe happened over lunch or over a cup of coffee or at happy hour after a set of meetings, that seems to have been replaced by just another Teams call that I have to get off the line at the top of the hour to go take another Teams call. And I'm curious if you feel like there's a downside to maybe some of the tools that are being used today and and how we're doing that. And if we're going to lose anything, I mean, I'm asking somebody who started this conversation today, talking all about human connection 
and communication and collaboration, right? And so while some of that is enabled in the purest sense as, as what we're doing right now, are we missing out because we didn't get a chance to talk about our families and what we're doing this weekend and where we're going on vacation and stuff? What are your thoughts on that? I think humans have the need to connect. You're right. There is There are different ways of doing that. We've We've been having conversations the last couple of months about, to your point, we're on back-to-back-to-back Zoom calls or Teams calls. How do we get our work done? So there is an issue with a lot of folks working a lot more hours in the remote settings um, just because they're starting earlier and ending later so that they can get some of that actual work done. Um, And that's that whole work-life balance. Simultaneously, if you're working from home, it's a lot easier even if it's seven o'clock, when you put it down, you're two steps away from the family. Right. And that that connectivity is allowed. And even being interrupted during teams meetings by kids walking in and out and grandkids and dogs. Um, I don't know how many times my puppy appeared in teams calls over the course of the last four years. Um, but it, it's that idea that in some ways you're becoming more human because they're seeing your whole life and not just yourself at work. The other thing that we found um, is that as people get onto the next Teams calls, there's a couple of minutes in there before it starts that that chit chat is happening. Yeah. So we're creating virtual opportunities to continue the connections, but we're still planning face-to-faces and offsite meetings and collaboration workshops and those types of things face-to-face. What's uh, as, as we're kind of wrapping up here, any advice that you would give to our listeners to help improve the success of their digital transformation projects? Listen to your people, engage them, make sure they're a part of it. Yeah. And double check everything with them along the way. I think that's a great point. And and to just reinforce something that you said early on, I think no matter how much time we think we're we're doing on this, I think there's probably always room for improvement on getting all of the stakeholders bought into the vision to make sure that you have a well-documented, communicated vision and, and to make sure that everybody's on board and to provide people with the opportunity to to weigh in and, and hear that and ask questions and really understand that. Because if we're asking everybody to row in the same direction, we've got to tell them what that direction is and how fast we're going to row and all those other things that come with that vision. Absolutely. Couldn't yeah. have said it better. That's awesome. All right. Well, Gail, thank you so much for taking the time today. We do need to uh, to wrap up the show right there uh, to our audience. I hope you found this conversation as enjoyable as I have. And again, I'd like to thank Gail for uh, joining me today on the show. As a friendly reminder, this podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the only end-to-end systems training platform optimized for frontline operations. You can learn more about how you can solve your frontline systems training challenges by visiting skillful.com. That's S-K-Y-L-L-F-U-L.com. Thank you again, and I look forward to you joining us on our next episode. Gail, thanks again. Thank you. 